This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely positively need to make sure every surface is clean, bust out the cleaner with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by NicoBrew.com. NicoBrew.com is your one-stop hop shop where Nico and his kilt take care of all your hop needs with nitrogen flush mylar and only $5 to ship anywhere in the U.S. and with great international rates. If you're a pro brewer or homebrew shop owner, get a commercial account at pro.nicobrew.com to take full advantage of Nico and his guild. And by BrewGuru, a free smartphone app made by our friends at the American Homebrewers Association. BrewGuru helps beer lovers save money on beer and beer brewing supplies, and it serves up exclusive content from Zymergy Magazine and homebrewersassociation.org. BrewGuru is free for Android, iPhone, and iPad. Check it out. Y-Yeast Laboratories has provided fresh, premium liquid yeast cultures worldwide since 1986. Choose from our product collection of ale, lager, German wheat, Belgian ale, wine, malolactic, or wild and sour strains for your next fermentation creation. We're here to help you ferment premium products like the professional. Y-Yeast. And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. beer people welcome to experimental brewing with denny and drew i'm denny khan and i'm drew beecham together we're the authors of experimental homebrewing mad science in the pursuit of great beer and homebrew all-stars 25 of the world's best brewers telling you their secrets and tips and tricks and giving you some recipes uh between the two of us we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience now i'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas and i'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out and on today's episode, we're going to throw out our usual format because this is our all Q&A episode. Well, okay, almost all Q&A. We're actually going to start first with an interview that Denny did on the bus out to the hop farms at Hop School a couple of weeks ago with Gary Glass of the American Homebrewers Association, one of our sponsors. And amongst many of the things that they're talking about is the AHA's new mobile phone app called Brew Guru, which gives you access to tips tricks, deals, and everything else. Now, one very important note, since this interview was recorded a couple of weeks ago, the AHA has released a new version of BrewGuru, updating, making some fixes, giving you some ability to control location services and whatnot. If you've already downloaded BrewGuru, you might want to update the app. And if you haven't downloaded it already, well, hopefully Gary's going to convince you as to why you want to download it. Yeah, it's a, it's a really cool app, man. I, uh, I happen to be someplace... Uh, in civilization yesterday, and I fired it up, and suddenly I discovered there were places I could buy beer all around me. 
But I resisted the urge because I was busy. Too busy for beer, man. Can you believe that? You're supposed to be retired, man. I'm working you too hard. All right. (laughs) So without further ado, let's go listen to Gary and Denny and talk about Brew Guru. We are on the bus heading toward the YCH processing and production facility in Sunnyside, Washington. They make hop pellets. They make hop extract there. And I'm sitting here with Gary Glass, the director of the AHA. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on at the AHA. Hi, Gary. Hi. (laughs) Oh, this is just kind of like Fifth Element and Ruby Rod. (laughs) It's it's hard to hear, so uh, hopefully we'll we'll do this. So uh, we uh, we've been talking a lot about the Brew Guru app that the AHA just rolled out. Uh, Why don't you fill people in on that? Sure. Um, You know, it's a it's an app that's designed for for homebrewers and and beer lovers as well, Um, and and not something that you have to be an AHA member to do, uh, but it is something that, uh, it's, it's a great way to try out membership, because if you're not a member, get a free trial membership, no no strings attached, no credit card required, uh, you can download the app, and it gives you 15 days of AHA membership, so you can try out the AHA member deals, you can get access to Zymergy Magazine, all of our, con- all of our um, uh, locked content for members, uh, but we're so confident that people are going to have a really great experience once they once they get uh, that that opportunity to to try out membership that, that they're going to go ahead and join uh, afterwards. So we don't feel like we need any any strings attached. So uh, why don't you explain what Brew Guru is and what it does? Yeah, so um, it's it's really kind of two apps in one. Uh, you know, on one side, it is a brewery locator, so we're able to utilize, like, since the American Home Brewers Association is a part of the Brewers Association, we have the Brewers Association database at our disposal, and so the app includes a map of all of the breweries in the United States, uh, as well as all of the homebrew shops in our database, all of the craft beer bars in our database, so it's a really a powerful uh, locator for, for great beer. And included with that is it makes it really easy to find uh, the the member deals participants amongst all those breweries and and homebrew shops. Uh, They they stand out on the map. Um, And then it it will also actually uh, push notify anybody who has the the push notifications and location services turned on uh, whenever they're within 100 meters of a a member deal location. So it lets you know you're you're right there outside of a, a member deal. Then you can pull up your member card digitally, along with the benefit, the, the the discount that's offered at that business, and use the use your member deals right there. So no need to remember anything, no need to carry your member card around. You get your member deals right there from the app. Yeah, I was I was pretty impressed that my membership card is like right there, man. That's very cool because I can never find it when I need it. Oh, we've heard that so many times. I personally haven't had that problem, but maybe I'm biased being director of the AHA. I carry mine with me everywhere, but but yeah, that you know, having that that member card, never having to think about where it is, don't have to pull it out of my wallet. It's right there on my phone, wherever I go. Uh, it's I, I think that's that's fantastic. And then you know, having the member card right there with the with the discount on it makes it so much easier for the server uh, to, to understand what what you're talking about like oh well yeah there's there's the discount it's described right there so that that aspect of the app I think is is cool and you know worth it in and of itself 
Um, but beyond that, we also have collections of content that uh, that the AHA has curated from you know Zymergy magazine, from articles published on homebrewersassociation.org. We've got recipes. Um, soon to be added, we'll we'll add some uh, some of the seminars from HomebrewCon. Uh, as, as well as the new Zymergy Live seminars, uh, once in, in later editions. But all this content is is made it's, it's put together in such a way to make it very easy to access what you're interested in. So I mean, we already offer uh, you know all the all the issues of Zymergy digitally going going all the way back to the year 2000. Well, that's I mean, 16 volumes of of magazines to search through, and so if you you're not familiar with what's in there it's it's really hard to you know hard to navigate and find exactly what you want so this was our idea of let's make it really easy to get all this content that we have available uh, much more accessible to to members yeah I mean and that's what I think is really cool about it I mean you can you can use it to find a member deal go in get a discount on your beer and then pull up something to read while you're drinking your beer all at the same time with the same app yeah yeah, and then and, and so see, even with all the members-only content that's in the app, there's still so much that's that's of value to me to anybody. So if, you know, if you're never planning on homebrewing, just the, the the brewery locator alone is is worth it with this app. So you know, if you get to get your free 15 days and you don't care, so be it. You can you can continue to use the app and it'll it'll still be a value. Um, there will be a constant reminder of <laughs> just what you're missing out by not being a member. Yeah, and, and that's true, and, and you do. I mean, you know, if, if you're into homebrewing, or even if you're not into homebrewing, if you're into beer, there's still a lot of very, very interesting content there. Uh-huh. Yeah, sure. I mean, it's, it's, I, 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 we're really going for something that, that was going to be like a, an amazing app in and of itself, regardless of the membership component. But with the membership component built in, it, it just goes to show just what all the AHA has to offer and what a great value it is. Um, part of that member deals thing is you can click every time you've actually used a member deal, so you can start tr tracking how frequently you're saving money. I mean, within the first week, I think I, you know, week or two, I, I'd already racked up five member deals. Like, holy crap! I didn't realize I was drinking beer outside out that often. <laughs> so, so it's like the more you drink, the more you save. It's, well, exactly. You know, and, and it's it just shoves you into those places, and so it's also also really beneficial to those businesses that are providing those member deals because it makes their business stand out against everything else and will drive traffic to those to those breweries and beer bars and, and shops that are that are providing those discounts to AHA members. Oh man, that's really cool. Uh, I, this is the first time I've uh, actually been anywhere since I got the app, so I haven't had a chance to use it yet. And even though my funky phone doesn't take advantage of, of all the features of it, there's, I mean, when I wanted to go out and buy a six-pack last night, the app told me where I needed to go to get it. You know, it was extremely handy. Yeah, I, I already, I use it all the time now. It's, it, it is, it's the best locator there is. I, I used to use our, uh, our, our mobile website, and uh, this is just so, so much better than, than that. I actually got somebody to download it on my uh, on my plane ride out to Seattle yesterday. I happened to sit next to an AHA member, showed him the app, and as we were taxiing to the gate, he downloaded it because and he was going to go use it to to find some 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 breweries to drink at in Seattle. Right, oh man. So, okay. So once again, just in case you missed it at the top, 
We are talking about the Brew Guru app from the American Home Brewers Association. It's available for both Android and iOS, and uh, find it in the Google Play Store or the uh, the iTunes Store. Yeah. Right? Yep. Uh-huh. Cool. All right, Gary. Thanks a bunch, man. Oh yeah, thank you, Danny. My pleasure. That was my talk with Gary on the bus as we were heading out to the hot fields in Yakima. Uh, it was a bit noisy. People on the bus were going, what the heck is going on here? But uh, you got some info on Brew Guru. It's pretty cool. Go download it for yourself. Check it out. We think you're going to like it. Yeah, bringing you nothing but the finest field recordings on the way to the field. That's Denny's. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, hey. Now that we're done with the AHA, we're done with Brew Guru, why don't we get to the real point of this episode? Let's get to some questions. And our first question comes from uh, Kelly Wingert, and it's all about the yeast. Denny and Drew is adding yeast nutrient or yeast energizer to a stuck fermentation uh, make the yeast start fermenting again. I routinely see this advice given on forums and social media. Um, well, you know what, Kelly? No. I, I see the exact same advice given all the time. Uh, I've given it myself sometimes. And here's the here's the deep, dark, dirty secret of truth in my life. I don't think it does a damn thing. I, I, I think agree. it's I, I think it's one of those things where people are reaching out to their fellow brewer and saying, "I feel for you. I know that you want some action, and here's a way to uh, to get it going." Now the problem is the reason why I don't think it does anything. For the most part, I don't think most stuck fermentations. I'm. Uh, Yes, there will probably be cases when it does work, but I don't think most people's stuck fermentation issues are going to be a matter of yeast nutrient availability, because usually beer has plenty of that. Most of the time, what your problem is going to come down to is yeast health and viability. And to my mind, adding nutrient into the beer is sort of like tossing antibiotics into the middle of a sewer and hoping that that cures somebody's cold. So uh, to me, the right answer is... Uh, get yourself some healthy yeast, make sure that they're nice and vital, get them up and running at full croissen, and add that into the beer. And I think you'll have a much better chance of success than adding yeast nutrient or energizer to a uh, RA stuck ferment. Well, and the other thing that uh, I see all too often is that people assume that a, that you have a stuck fermentation when you actually probably have a finished fermentation. Uh, it's it's possible to make a wort that's more unfermentable than you realize, and you can throw all the yeast in the world at it, and it still isn't going to do anything more. So yeah, and that go- and that goes with the same sort of advice that you see where people are like, oh, pitch a wine yeast or pitch a champagne yeast. Uh, those aren't going to be able to do anything usually unless your problem is too much simple sugar. But if you have a real question about, uh, to Danny's point, as to whether or not the ferment's stuck or the ferment's complete, then I would highly recommend that uh, people look up the idea of a forced fermentation test, uh, which is a fairly straightforward thing to pull off. You just need a stir plate and some of your wort and spin it up on the stir plate and let it go and watch where it stops. And you don't even really need that. Uh, you just pull out some of your wort or some of the beer that you think is stuck, put it in a a jar or whatever you want. It's only about a cup. Add a whole crap 
crap load of yeast to it. Any kind of yeast, bread yeast, whatever you've got. Put a bunch of yeast in there. We're not trying to make beer. We're trying to see if that wort will actually ferment. Keep it in a warm place and check it in a day or two. If you have further fermentation, then the problem is that your yeast is not working on the wort. If you don't have any further fermentation, then the issue is that uh, your wort is done fermenting and it's not going to go any further no matter what you do. So keep that uh, forced fermentation test, also known as the fast fermentation test, in mind because it can be a really, really valuable tool to uh, determine what the issue really is. So I, I guess the next one's up to me, huh? Indeed. Okay, this is from Jerry Hodge, came in via email. Thanks, Jerry. We appreciate your question. And uh, the question is, do you guys repitch yeast anymore? Uh, I found that some strains have resulted in a very low clove phenolic in light ales, especially with repitched WLP002. Any ideas on that? I'm about as certain as I can be that there was no infection, no brett or wild yeast flavor other than the low clove, and fermentation temperature was held in the low 60s, perhaps a bit too cool for too long, maybe. Is WLP02 more susceptible to petite mutants than others? In other words, like stressed yeast, too cold, or perhaps just bad luck with the strain. I have no problems repitching other light ale strains, such as uh, O. 29 Kolsch or light lager repitches like he mentions 2206 or 2421. Well, Jerry, I'm going to say right off that uh, I cannot remember the last time I used WLP002. Um, Drew, double check me here. Is that the same as Y yeast 1968? The ESB yeast? Yeah. I think that is. Yeah, I think it is too. So, and I haven't worked with 1968 a lot either, but uh, I'll base my comments on that and you can take them for whatever they're worth. Uh, I have not found that yeast to be any more susceptible to problems repitching than any other strain. And I know, Jerry, you said that you're certain you don't have any infection, but I got to believe that you do. Um, that that clove phenolic is something that I have experienced from from an infection before, uh, especially if there's any smokiness to it. That could be a part of it. Although I'm a little bit baffled as why you're only getting it with OO2 and no other strains. Uh, I know that there are some strains that don't repitch as well as others. I've oftentimes heard it suggested that uh, Hefeweizen strains shouldn't be repitched because you actually lose some of the uh, the esters and phenols that uh, that you want. But I don't I don't know much about OO2. You got any, you got any ideas? Yeah, I've never I've never experienced that sort of thing. I mean, uh, O2 is a hell of a uh, an ester thrower, right? I mean, think mm-hmm. folders. And right. so I usually tend to think of O2 in 1968 as uh, as being more uh, jammy, fruity uh, issues going on with it. But I've never experienced a repitch problem with it. Now, again, I haven't done a lot of repitching with uh, O2 or 1968. Uh, I have done a lot of repitching with 
uh, some of my Saison strains, but I think that's a little less uh, problematic or at least a little less detectable as a problem. Um, yeah. But yeah, to, I mean, to answer the very first part of the question, though, from Jerry, uh, I do still repitch yeast, but I tend to only repitch uh, special strains, uh, things that I, uh, that I can't necessarily get my hands on any, uh, all the time. So if it's something like 002 or 001, uh, no, typically I just go and uh, start from a fresh culture, even though I do really strongly think that things like 001 do benefit from uh, repitching. And I usually have uh, professional brewer friends of mine tell me they don't really feel like 001 or 1056 or any of those sort of Chico, California uh, complex strains really hit their going until they get to at least the fourth generation. Uh, yeah, but, I would. I'd agree yeah. with that for sure. I mean, and I, I'm sure it comes as no surprise to anyone out there that uh, I, I use Y yeast 1450 for uh, a majority of my brewing, and I do uh, harvest the slurry. I repitch it. I don't do anything funky like washing it or anything. I uh, will split the uh, slurry from a fermenter into two or three sanitized containers. Uh, make sure that there's uh, leftover beer on top of them keep them in the fridge uh and i that's generally what i will do uh but it, it it depends on on when i'm brewing and uh if if i'm lazy or have time to make a starter for it and speaking of starters that leads right into the next question yeah i'll read it but this is uh, this is your question to answer so uh from jeff okay. muse of st louis missouri the email we get a question about uh sns starters uh, what are the limitations of an SNS starter? For example, should it not be used with lagers, high-gravity ales, high-gravity lagers? What if you're fermenting more than five gallons? Do you need, then, uh, two liters in an eight-liter vessel? I know all this has been discussed on various forum threads, but I don't think anyone has collated the information and put it into one central location. Personally, I've not been brave enough to try it with lagers at all, or with ales over 1056. So, Mr. Dencenzo, for those of us who are not hip to the lingo... Can you describe an SNS starter? Yes, indeed. Uh, the concept uh, is an old one. Uh, basically, when I started brewing 20 years ago, this was pretty much the way everybody made starters, and it has been popularized more recently by our good buddy Saccharomyces cerevisiae, uh, who posts frequently on the AHA forum and uh, brought up the idea there. Uh, the concept is that you put uh, a quart of mid-30s wort into a one-gallon container, shake the crap out of it until the container is pretty much full of foam, as much as you can get, and pitch your yeast into that. 24 hours later, you pitch the entire thing, starter wort and all, into your beer. Now, that's the way I learned to make starters 20 years ago. Um, maybe not quite as much shaking, but the basic idea is the same. Then all this stuff came out with people coming up with yeast calculators and advocating the use of stir plates and that kind of stuff. So being the inquisitive geek that I am, I kind of went that direction and uh, tried doing all of that kind of stuff for a while, and it worked well. But when, uh, when old Saccharomyces uh, posted this info, uh, it, it was obvious that he had some insight into the whole process. So I went back to giving it a try. And you know what? 
Not only does it work at least as well as all the yeast calculator stir plate crap, but it's a lot easier to do too. And you guys know that I'm all about the easy. Uh, I don't want to cut corners. I don't want to take any chance of making inferior beer. But on the other hand, I want anything that I do to be as easy as it possibly can be. And this definitely is. Uh, just a little data point. I brewed the other day. I made a uh, 1065 version of my no tie brown ale hey it's fall it's time for an american brown i pulled a, a pack of uh, 1450 out of the fridge the date was march 22nd uh 2016 so this yeast was pretty darn close to six months old poured it into my uh, one-quart SNS starter, shook it up the next day, pitched it into the wort, and four hours later, I had active fermentation, and by the next morning, I was getting blow-off. So, there you go. The, S the SNS idea does work. Uh, I just put it into a 1065 beer. It worked great. I even used a six-month-old smack pack, and it worked great. Uh, I have done it with loggers. I haven't done it with a high-gravity logger. Uh, I think that if I did, I would probably go with using two quarts of wort, but still in my one-gallon container. If I was really, really paranoid, I might do two separate containers with a quart in each, but that sounds like more work to me. So anyway, I think, I guess the, the basic answer to the question is yes, it is a very viable technique. Uh, it works with ales. It works with lagers. Uh, I have used it on ales up to 1075 and had no problems doing it. If I was going to be going... You know, for a really big ale, say if I was going to be making a barley wine or something, I certainly wouldn't do it. But I would use it to make a five-gallon batch of a low-gravity beer that I would then use as the starter for the barley wine. Um, Mid-gravity lagers I've had no problems with. And uh, I guess somebody else is going to have to try the high-gravity lagers until I get around to making one. Well, I mean, I can't say for... Uh, doing a direct SNS type starter, but uh, there is a old Falcons recipe that we used to do all the time called Falcons Claws, which was a Falcons version of Sammy Claws back when they weren't making it. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know, that starts at uh, original gravity of 1140. So it's about <laughs> as big of a logger as you're ever going to see. Right. And that one, we would do a starter for a five gallon batch. And use the yeast cake that came out of that. And me being me, there were times when I definitely did that without doing uh, shaking. So at least there was sort of a two-step SNS process. Because if you really want to think about it, the vastly underrated technique of brewing a starter batch of actual beer in a full five-gallon volume for your massive projects is right. really just a giant SNS starter. Yeah, you're yeah. right. So... Uh, I, I'm I'm a big fan of that. I think if you're going to do anything massive, uh, doing anything other than using a yeast cake from another batch is really sort of setting yourself up for more heartache than uh, than you had imagined. Yeah, right. You will you'll be having undue stress, and you don't want to stress over beer. I mean, come on. And besides, you get another batch of beer out of the same. That's project. right. 
yeah, awesome. yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, anyway, just to kind of wrap this up real quick, I would encourage all of you who are going the route of yeast calculators and stir plates to just give this a try on a batch or two and see what you think and compare. Uh, you may be like me and come away putting your stir plate back up on a shelf where you don't need to get to it very often. Okay, you're up next, buddy. All right, uh, let's see. This one comes from uh, David Schill of Cedar Falls, Iowa, specifically of Craze, the Cedar River uh, Cedar River Association of Zymergy uh, Enthusiasts. Um, he says here, what are the pros and cons between using a yeast starter or buying two vials or packages of yeast? All right, so uh, let's break this down the old-fashioned way. Uh, pros on both sides. Pro yeast starter. Uh, you get to double-check the vitality of your yeast. Uh, second pro, you get to uh, grow up your yeast to a particular size, uh, depending upon what you need. Uh, third is that it's less expensive. Uh, the pros of buying two uh, packages or vials of yeast, uh, well, it's less work. Um, you also can make sure that you have uh, yeast of the same lot, so you can be assured of some of the same vi vitality. Uh, you also kind of get yourself into a mode of being able to think about pitching multiple strains because now you're not worried about uh, doing you know starters for everything. Uh, the cons of using a yeast starter take some time. Uh, other con is uh, you have an additional step where you could possibly run into sanitation and infection issues. Uh, the cons of buying two uh, packages or vials of yeast. You don't get to check the viability of your yeast. And uh, two, it's more expensive. Now, from my own personal experience, I've done both of these. And typically, uh, I prefer still to do starters for uh, everything except for dry yeast. Uh, I just feel like unless I'm being lazy, and there are times when I'm extraordinarily lazy... Unless I'm being lazy, I feel like I just get better results when I make sure I, I grow my yeast up in some sort of starter media before I actually put them to work in sort of the uh, salt mines that is beer fermentation. <laughs> How about you, Denny? Well, you know, I'm, I've been sitting here thinking, I don't know if I have ever gone the route of pitching two packs of yeast rather than making a starter. Well, that's because uh, you're cheap. Well, that's exactly what I was about to say. I, was, I think partly the reason is that I'm just too cheap to do that. Uh, but I, I do agree with Drew that by making a starter, you know that your yeast is viable. I think that probably you'll even end up with a little bit more yeast than you would if you uh, if you pitched two packs, uh, unless they were extremely fresh packs so that they had, were close to 100% viability. But yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much a make a starter uh, with everything but dry yeast kind of guy. Uh, the one, the one exception to that is if I'm making a two and a half gallon batch on the Zymatic and it's a moderate gravity, I'll just pour a smack pack right in, uh, and that, and, and abrogate my, uh, my always make a starter rule because, you know, for, Two and a half gallons of a 1045, 1050 beer, let's face it, a smack pack's going to be okay. Yeah, and I, I I do that as well with my Zymatic. Um, yep. Because at that point, yeah, let's just go. Yep. Next question comes from our buddy Bob Barrow, who makes hop candy and sells it under a company of the same name. It's great stuff. Give it a try. 
Bob says, I've been using glass carboys to ferment in since I began brewing in 86 or 87. When the ferment is done, there's a ring of crud at the top of the beer that sticks to the inside of the carboy. For the most part, this crud is somewhat pasty and is easily removed, but there's always a portion, maybe 10% of the circumference, that's really hard and dried and very difficult to remove. There's no rhyme or reason as to where on the circumference this area will be located in relation to anything. I thought that maybe it would be located on the part of the circumference that was exposed to ambient light as opposed to the part that was up against a wall. Well, no, that's not the case. I've been very keen at sanitation and cleaning such that there's no type of visible residue left behind in the carboy before it's used to ferment, and it still happens on different parts of the circumference as time goes on, as opposed to always near something like the seam on the carboy, thinking that it may act as some sort of nucleation site. Just wondering if anyone has ever mentioned this before. It used to really bug me, but I've learned just how much beer it takes to reduce the bugging down to something like, kind of, sort of bugs me. Well, Bob, this is a very interesting question. Uh, first thing I want to know is, have you been smoking those hops? Um, okay, anyway. <laughs> All right. So, um, I, you know, I don't really have a good explanation for this uh it reminds me of a question that went around on the uh, rat crafts brewing usenet group when i started brewing where somebody had noticed that uh, they would like see like a film of yeast like on the north side of their carboy or something like that and it's like <laughs> i don't know uh, i would i guess if i had to, uh, to guess at something my guess is that somehow the liquid level there is not reaching the crud, and so it dries out. But I don't know, man. You got anything? Chemtrails. It's always chemtrails. <laughs> chemtrails. Yeah. It's a governmental conspiracy designed to designed to confuse and befuddle Bob. Uh, no, yeah, I can't think of anything other than it may be a particular area of the fermentation that was. Uh, more vigorous and deposited more uh, more stuff, right. and that more stuff basically dried out. Um, but yeah, as for actual, according to Hoyle, full on scientific explanation, uh, magnetic eddy currents and microgravities, uh, and chemtrails and steel beams. Yeah, I, I think I think we should go with the chemtrails answer and stick to that, man. I don't think that has ever been used in home brewing before. <laughs> <laughs> right. okay bob yeah, so bob i'm sorry you get you got me sitting there kind of going huh yeah, all right yeah our next question comes from uh <laughs> our friend uh stepped on a pop top okay from the uh, bruise brothers forum and uh mike is uh sending an email said hey fellas i've read a lot of posts that talk about stepping up fermentation temperatures and in many cases it calls for one degree per day until x temperature is reached or holding a batch at 62 not 61 not 63, etc. Uh, I've finally ended uh, ended the air of the swamp cooler, and 70 batches later, I've graduated to an old kegerator for fermenting while it lasts. Good luck. I did that too, and I got about a year. Uh, so acute temperature monitoring slash achieving has never been my luck. Even with a kegerator and a digital thermostat, I have an approximate three degree delta for my chosen temperature. The thing kicks on and off like crazy too, and in the South Florida heat, it's fighting like a mofo. 
I'm not a worry brewer for most any procedure, and I just can't see raising one degree a day would make a, a hill of real difference. Or if I ferment at 65 instead of 63. I've been making darn good beer, in my humble opinion, without too much temperature nurturing. So my question is, finally, is exact one-by-one one degree monitoring really necessary? Do either of you do it? And either way you answer, can you give me some good backup, please? I'm just not that picayune. All right, well, one, thank you for using the term picayune in a question. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, as for uh, our uh, our exact uh, belief, well, I mean, look at how I do my saisons. I do my saisons where I uh, throw them in a water bath. I, chill, I I do take care to chill them down to a temperature that I know. So usually I'll, I'll recommend 63 degrees. But then I go into a water bath full of ice, and they get the yeast in there. And then otherwise, I pretty much just watch the water temperature and deal with that. Now, that's what I do for my saisons, and that is literally the temperature control on those things. Eventually, I let them run and rise up to like 90, 95, whatever the Southern California heat my garage wants to get to. And those work like a charm. With other ales, uh, I just throw them in my mini fridge. I have an old kegerator, too, that I use. And I have a, ch a spare chest freezer. And for those, I just do the whole tape the the probe to the side of the carboy and let it go. And those Johnson controllers, the Love controllers, yeah, they have the same sort of temperature differential. And I've never had any sort of issues with it. The big thing is, I mean, you have to remember, even though fermentation is active and is stirring the wort, you're going to have all sorts of temperature gradients throughout the wort. So even if you are super obsessive about this idea of uh, one degree difference... Uh, I don't think it's really going to make that much difference because you don't have that even control over your massive batch of liquid. Yeah, um, I guarantee you that one degree is not going to make that much difference. I mean, no. let's, let's assume that you are one of our friends outside of America who does not use the Fahrenheit scale. Hmm. Now, one degree Celsius is, what, around two degrees Fahrenheit. So if you're off by one degree Celsius then you are off by two degrees Fahrenheit. Big freaking deal. Uh, raising one degree a day, come on, nobody can really do that. And if they claim they can, they're lying. Uh, yeah. You can you can uh, maybe set your controller to increase one degree a day, but that doesn't really mean that your beer is going to be doing that. Um, so, yeah, it, it, you say that you're not a worry brewer, and that is the right attitude for this. Uh, one degree, two degrees, three degrees, even, even four degrees most of the time is just really not going to matter that much. No, so, but I do, uh, I do feel... Before we get eviscerated by the people out there who love their temperature control, one, temperature control is important unless you're doing uh, my Saison thing. But the mm -hmm. other thing is, I do think one of the reasons why people like those schedules that they set up, where it's, you know, raise it to XYZ temperature, you know, this many degrees per day. One, it gives you active involvement with the beer constantly. And it also gives you sort of a recipe formula slash magic inc incantation that you know that you're that you're following. So you kind of keep track of the beer better, I think, more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, sure, fine. That's that's great. Uh, you can you can do that no matter what the case. But the 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 bottom line is that yes, you definitely have a few degrees of leeway, and uh, not being exact is really not going to have any any negative consequences on your beer. Uh, especially after the first few days. So don't sweat it, buddy. 
keep doing what you're doing. Uh, I, w- I used a, uh, a, a swamp cooler method for close to oh, 15, 16 years before I got my chest freezer. I love it. Uh, I wouldn't go back unless I had to, even though it, it works if you don't have a chest freezer. So Yeah, and for further backup, you can take a look at some of Marshall's experiments over on Brewlosophy about uh, fermentation temperatures and some of the differences they've been able to uh, get away with, shall we say. Right, right. Okay, next question comes from Dione De Marina. Wow, I'm sorry for messing up your name, but, (laughs) uh, you know... Here, here is the question. First of all, thanks for the podcast. I've listened to the first 22 episodes last week. Two times speed makes that easier, and it's great. Boy, I can imagine Drew at double speed. Whoa. Yeah, that, that's On, like chipmunk. <laughs> really? Okay. On Saturday, uh, September 10th, I brewed 12 gallons of a big, big Imperial Stout. OG was 11.45. Holy cow. (laughs) I oxygenated for three minutes with one liter per minute of pure oxygen and pitched a ton of yeast, WLP007, from a previous fermentation at uh, 14 degrees Celsius, 57 Fahrenheit. On Monday morning, there were signs of fermentation, slow bubbling, and I let the temperature raise slowly one degree Fahrenheit every 12 hours. Oh, there's one of those people. (laughs) On Saturday the 17th, the temperature was uh, 18.5 Celsius, 65.3 Fahrenheit, and the gravity had gone to 1098, but bubbling had obviously slowed down, and I had to leave for a business trip. I came back yesterday to find no bubbling at all, so I decided to raise the temp again to 20 degrees Celsius, 68 Fahrenheit, and swirl the fermenter slowly to degas. This morning I have raised the temperature another 1 degree and done the same thing, but still no bubbling. I will measure the gravity tonight, but I still have the feeling it will still be very far from the expected 1045 or so. Now the question is, any ideas on what to do next? Pitching more yeast is likely going to be a waste. The options I can think of are keep raising the temperature another few degrees, up to 74 max maybe, and keep swirling every 12 hours, leave alone for a week and see how it proceeds, or dump. And this last option, he says, was a very expensive beer, both in money and work, and he doesn't want to do that. And a couple of other options. Add more O2 through the bottom of the conical to raise yeast and oxygenate. Add CO2 to raise the yeast without oxygenating. Uh, what do you think is best? Anything else you can think of? Well, yeah, I would say the first thing to do is go back to what we said in the first question and do the forced fermentation test. Figure out if it will ferment anymore, because if it doesn't, then there's not much else you can do. So, assuming you do the forced fermentation test and you discover that there all are still fermentables left there in the wort for the yeast to work on, the first thing I would do would be get a big slurry of yeast from somewhere and throw it in there. He says that he doesn't think more yeast will help, and I'm not sure why he really believes that, uh, especially if the forced fermentation test shows that there are more fermentables left there, then the first thing you want to do is put a whole bunch more yeast in. 
And then at that point, I would leave it alone for a week and see how it proceeds and just kick back. If he doesn't get any results on the fast fermentation test, and uh, it looks like it may be done and still not be what he wants it to be, the only other thing I can think of right off the top of my head is to brew another batch of beer and uh, and blend them together to uh, to kind of like uh, dilute the uh, the effects of the batch that uh, didn't ferment as far as he wanted. Uh, you got any ideas on that one? Yeah, I, I'm I'm with you. First, get the fermentation te- uh, test running and leave the beer alone. I mean, right now you don't know what the the gravity is. So first things first, get the gravity. Second. Do the force fermentation test if the gravity is still above where you want to be, and then see what see what results are. If you do have uh, fermentables left, then yeah, the big thing is go get a big yeast cake from wherever. Uh, this is not a situation for a polite little starter. This is a this is a situation for a massive amount of yeast because you are going into a high alcohol, very toxic, very hostile environment, and you want to get those things established now. To start with, to go back to the whole setup that we have here, to me, I think one of the problems was the initial fermentation temperature. Uh, I, I think you, I think you didn't set yourself up for uh, any great success by starting so low at fifty-seven degrees. Now, I get the idea is that you want to keep the the wort low so that you aren't generating a lot of esters and phenols. It's the same thing I do with some of my batches. But 57 is pretty aggressively low, for, uh, particularly for an English strain, I think. Um, so I would say get the gravity, get the fermentation test, um, pitch more yeast. The other thing also is, depending upon where your original gravity is, you may be done, particularly with a massive stout like this. A good friend of mine who no longer brews, Johnny Lieberman, uh, he used to have a series of beers that he called the Black Wine Series. And he made it up to, I think, like Black Wine Black Wine 5, which is in one of my books. And those things were massive. They were on this scale. You know, 1150, 1150 was not an unusual starting gravity for him. But he had one, and it was the Black, line, Black Wine 5, that had a final gravity of something absurd, 1055. Now, just dumb. Dumbly high, and we scratched our heads. We tried a couple things to get it to move anywhere. It didn't want to. But here was the important part. We stopped fussing with it because it turned out that even at 1055, the thing tasted like a big, rich Dark Lord, which was exactly what he was going for. Uh, certainly not the most diet-friendly beer out there, but it worked and it tasted fine. And actually, with that much alcohol and the amount of hops that were, uh, were in that particular beer, it needed some final gravity. <laughs> Yeah, so. right. Well, I mean, for instance, my bourbon vanilla porter starts at 1086 and finishes around, oh, 1028 or something. And I'm constantly getting emails from people asking how they can get the gravity lower. And my response is, you don't want the gravity lower. For that beer, that is the correct finishing gravity. And I, I do need to point out that uh, that the, our questioner does say, I'll measure the gravity tonight, but I have the feeling it will still be very far from the expected 1045 or so. Well, buddy, until you measure the gravity, you, you really don't know. So do that first. If it's not where you want it to be, do the forced fermentation test. If the forced fermentation test turns out positive for fermentables, 
go to a brewery, pull one of your other fermenters or something like that, get some yeast out of that, put a whole bunch of yeast in it, uh, raise the temp up, sit back, wait, and see what happens. Yeah, and very important point here, don't be finicky about your second yeast choice. Uh, at this point in time, nope. you've already established almost all your yeast character. Right. So just whatever you have that isn't a super flocculent strain or uh, a super uh, alcohol-sensitive strain, get that in there. Uh, but yeah, I would say first things first, get the gravity, get a taste, and then do some testing. Yep, yep. All right, we have our first caller in our Q&A show, and it's a guy named Tim Vodder, who just happens to be my brother-in-law. How are you today, Tim? I'm okay. And uh, just to verify that we have not uh, paid you anything to be on the program. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, like we would. So, uh, no. Drew, why don't you read the question that Tim sent in to us? Well, first, I have a, I have a commentary uh, and a question of my own. Is it or okay. is it not true that you all have never talked before? No. Mm-hmm. We were in a wedding. Uh, That's right. I, I, had, I had for, I'd forgotten about that wedding. Oh, my God. <laughs> well... It was a while ago. Yeah, I I remember I remember spending all night long in the bar dancing my butt off to walk the dinosaur. <laughs> now this is an image. This is an image I didn't need in my life. All right. Yeah, you know it, it's something I could have done without recollecting too. Now it's back in my head again. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> there was the there was a lot of alcohol involved in that night. Yeah, Don, Don was is very infectious. All right, let's get to the question. All right, so, Tim, you wrote into us, and you said, I pitched yeast uh, late Saturday night, had action by noon Sunday, held the temperature of water around the fermentation bucket in the 55 to 65 degree range. Uh, Thermometer on one bucket had remained less than 68 degrees, or sorry, has remained less than 68 degrees. So when can I stop worrying about ice packs? At that time, can I leave the ice out and let things go through the weekend? Should I remove the buckets from the water bath? I have no means to do a proper cold carash. Should I return buckets to water and ice? Was planning to dry hop in secondary. Should I continue to try a hold 60-ish degrees at that point? I'm through now. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Drew. That, that thumbs it up. Uh, Drew, why don't you go first? All right. Well, you said that you had uh, uh, action on, on noon Sunday and uh, I think, I'm trying to remember, you emailed this to us, I think, on a Monday, so it was like two days after you, after fermentation, right? Started? Yeah, two or, two or three, I think I was in. Yeah. So, to me, again, from my Saison days, or Saison uh, protocol, I usually worry about temperature for the first three days, and then I'm a little bit more lackadaisical about it. So, unless I'm trying to do a lager, in which case lagers are their own persnickety stupidity, which is the reason why I don't do them very often. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for me, if I'm doing just a regular ale, and I'm not in one of my temperature-controlled uh, environments. Yeah, I will. I will control ice packs and all that for about the first six or seven days, unless I'm doing a saison, just basically long enough to get the the fermentation to sort of slow down. Uh, beyond that, with the with the other questions that you had in terms of uh, cold crashing and buckets and ice, and when you dry hop, uh, and whether or not you should remove things from the water, I find that water is such a good temperature insulator that I have no reason to remove the buckets from the water. And okay. and so I just, I, I leave the buckets there. If I was dry hopping, I wouldn't worry about trying to get back down into the 60s. And in reality, if you can't cold crash, just give it some extra time to settle. 
What do okay. you think? Yeah, I I mean, if, if I'm in a hurry, I'll worry about temperature control for about the first three days. If I'm not in a hurry, I'll let it go four or five. After that point, I kind of like like to let the temperature rise so i probably depending on you know what the ambient temperature was i would more than likely take the bucket out of the water at that point and start letting the temperature rise but on the other hand if it's like typical iowa summer temperatures that i remember uh, i would take drew's advice and leave it in the bucket to uh to kind of like use that thermal mass as uh as an insulator to keep the temperature from uh from varying more uh, i don't see any reason to try and get the temp back down to dry hop especially because uh you know you don't have a, a fridge or a freezer to do it in and uh you know which was a question that we uh we talk about too during this q a thing that you can dry hop at different temperatures and you'll get different effects but you know if you don't have the opportunity to to do that then it doesn't really matter does it no <laughs> good good answer that was the right answer tim <laughs> that, that uh, seemed like one of those slow midwestern responses <laughs> so it's the hot weather <laughs> <laughs> yeah right so so how's the beer been doing since uh, since you sent us this email um uh, well i i took it out of the water after I stopped the ice packs. I think I stopped the day after I had gotten your reply. Right. Um, and I think it got up to around 74 degrees, maybe a little less. Not and then I went away. Yeah. Then I went away for the weekend. And, uh, so I'm assuming it stayed, it stayed probably about in that range. I think when I got home, it was, uh, the basement was at about 72. And I think the beer, uh, the one fermenter still red, 74-ish. Right. And uh, and then I put it back in the water bath, but I haven't really been very diligent with the uh, ice packs. I've just, uh, I, I think I switched them out two or three times, but it stayed 60, 62, 64 as far as the, the water temp and then uh, the, the one uh, thermometer on the fermenter has been around 70. Yeah. That's pretty much you know, it stayed there pretty stable for since then. Yeah. Since probably Monday. I, I, I don't see that as being an issue. Have you taken a gravity reading recently? I haven't. Yeah, my my guess would be with, with that temperature, you're, you're done and ready to package that beer and start drinking it, buddy. <laughs> That's good news. <laughs> I thought you'd like that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that probably as a rule of thumb, after three to five days, you can worry a lot less about temperature control. What you don't want to do is, you know, let it get up into the upper 80s, 90s, something like that, you know? So yeah. if that's going to be the issue, then you want to try and keep it down a bit. But like I said, my standard procedure is uh, after about three days or something, I, I generally like to start raising the temp to finish off the fermentation because I'm impatient and I want to drink that beer. <laughs> I understand that. Yeah, I'll bet you do. <laughs> Drew, you got anything else? No, I mean, I think I think we've got a pretty good handle on it. I mean, I think a lot of people wig out on temperature control way more than is necessary. Again, except for outside of lagers. And even then, some stuff is showing that that's not necessarily even that important. But I think you're, I think you're good. 
yeah, obviously temperature control is is very important, but there's a, a point when you can stop worrying about it too, as long as it's going to be in the in the reasonable range. Yeah, that was the impression I had. I just wanted to, I guess make sure I was doing the right thing. <laughs> yeah, man. Well, you know what? And a lot of times, you just need to trust your intuition and throw throw your cares to the wind. Let me see. What other kind of cliches can I toss in there? Uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, just a little while ago, Drew and I were talking about the fact that you can learn an awful lot from f***ing up. <laughs> well, and, and Denny, I'm going I'm to add in one more hippieism for you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, you just got to listen to the beer, man. It'll tell you when it's ready, man. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I, I say that all the time. And you, and you, and when, if you're talking to your beer, you have to definitely remember to use man, you know. <laughs> Get its attention. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Okay, Tim. Well, it's been great talking to you, man. Uh, <laughs> hopefully, uh, hopefully, you'll be making a trip out here to visit uh, before too long, and we can get together and actually yeah. brew something. That'd be great. Thanks for having me on the on the podcast. Uh, it, it's our pleasure. Uh, take it easy, and uh, I guess I just earned some uh, points with your sister, huh? That's that's probably a good thing, I suppose. Right? <laughs> it can't ever hurt. So, all right, man. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks, you guys, too. All right, Tim. Thanks a lot, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, and there is the fermentation section. We're going to take a quick break now, listen to some music, and when we come back, we'll be talking about ingredient questions. Never wait for fruit to be in season again. With Vintner's Harvest fruit purees and wine bases, you can enjoy consistent quality fruit, which was picked at the peak of ripeness. F.H. Steinbart Company, the nation's oldest homebrew store, recommends grapefruit or tart cherry purees for your next sour or wild beer. So make sure to ask for them at your local homebrew supply store where Brewcraft USA products are sold. And remember, not all fruit purees are equal. If it's not in the Vintner's Harvest can, it's not the same. Welcome back, everybody. We hope that you enjoyed the musical interlude and the sounds, the sounds of a, of life, love, and beer. I don't know. <laughs> it is what it is. I'm confused. We have too many questions. But now it's time for us to get to our next seg- segment. It's time to, for us to talk ingredients. Uh, all the various things that go into make our beer, beer. And let's get it kicked off. We got a lot of hop questions today. It must be that time of year. Yeah. Uh, first one comes from Richard Eulis, and uh, it's about dry hopping. It says... Hey guys, over the past few years, I've tried every dry hopping technique known to man. Each has either of two downsides, insufficient exposure to the beer, leading to subpar aroma, or too many bits of hop pellets in the keg. They can also cause a mess. Drives me crazy. I've been thinking about trying something new and wanted your thoughts. What if I added, say, two to three ounces of hops to a French press and added hot, dechlorinated water to it? I got the... Then press down the hops, I don't know the micron size on a French press, but it's small, and pour off this extract into my keg. This seems much less messy, and I think the hot water would help pull all the oils from the hops, despite the significantly skewed water-to-hop volume. If you like this idea, there are two variables on which I'd like your input. One, what temperature would be best, 
I definitely don't want to isomerize the alpha acids, so below 180 for sure. But I'm also looking to emulate a dry hop character, not Whirlpool. At the same time, though, I think I'd need hot water to get the hops to give up their goodness. Two, how long should I let them steep? I suppose the answer to this question is going to be dependent on the answer to the first. For whatever it's worth, I'm leaning towards 120 degree water to allow to steep for 15 to 20 minutes. Anyway, I would love to hear your thoughts. All right. So I like new techniques. Uh, now, I've done a few hop teas, which is effectively what you're what you're talking about here, making a hop tea and uh, adding that to your keg. I see a couple problems here for for what you want to do is a lot of your dry hopping character is going to come with time in contact. And I don't know if doing this at 120 for 15 to 20 minutes is actually going to give you enough time to dissolve enough of your oils to really make a difference. Uh, you're also going to have to be kind of careful with your your water ratios because obviously you don't want to put a lot of water into your keg. Yeah, I was gonna, uh, I was going to suggest that uh, if you do this... Uh, how about using wort or some of the finished beer rather than uh, than water? Yep, you can do that. Um, so, I th- my uh, my one problem, I think the thing that you could do that would make this a little a little bit uh, more effective would be to either up the contact time or to somehow induce agitation uh, to keep the, uh, keep the hot pellets moving so that you can actually uh, get your your character out of there. So. Agitation-wise, I've been trying to think how I would do it in order to maintain the temperature, and I don't have a good answer for that. Um, the other thought I had, because I'm me and I like toys, is I would actually try sous-viding a hop extract here, or a hop tea, and actually go ahead and you know drop a mason jar full of water and hops into my sous-vide controller, uh, controlled bath at like 124 hours and do time and temperature that way uh i haven't done it yet i I was meaning to do it before we got to this uh recording session but life and uh, i totally want to try it though because i think that there's actually something there now having said all that i'm usually of the opinion that hop teas are rather lackluster uh they don't give you the the sort of thing that you want uh and the i suspect even with all the time and temperature and steeping and agitation and everything else I think uh, the results are going to be somewhat disappointing uh, yeah. in comparison to what you want. I, uh, I I would have to say that that's what I'm anticipating also. Plus, I have just uh, I've never been a fan of, of hop teas, and I, I don't believe that they would be a substitute for dry hopping. They might get some more hop flavor in there and a bit of aroma, but I just don't even like the way they taste when I put them in my beer. Try the sous vide thing, and if you really want to kind of shock yourself, the other thing to do, look up my uh, my speed tincture technique uh, that uses pressurized uh, right. containers, and try make a hop vodka. I think you'd be really surprised at just how much character that pulls within thirty seconds. Right. But yeah, I I I I, I totally dig what you're trying to go for. I think it's well worth a shot. Uh, I'm just not entirely certain it will work. Yeah, I, I agree. I I think that it might, might be an interesting uh, process to investigate, and I wouldn't hold out a lot of hope for it being successful. But you know what? I've actually been wrong before, so this could be another one of those circumstances. Internet, please record that into the wiki histories. Don't let it go down the memory hole. 
take on admitted <laughs> that he's been wrong. That's right. Our next question comes from David Updegraff, who gets off to a great start by saying, great show, man. And I like the way he got the man in there. Hopefully this is not a repeat, but I have a question on best practices to dry hop in the fermenter, in a secondary, in the keg. Should the hops be loose or in a mesh bag? This is like coming like Dr. Seuss. Any other options? I recently brewed a five-gallon batch of uh, IPA similar to a Bell's Two-Hearted. Fermentation was around 68 degrees. Uh, over halfway through, it let the rise to 72. The beer was dry hopped at room temperature in a mesh bag with three and a half ounces at the end of fermentation for approximately four days. I gravity filled my kegs through the spigot and the bag became stuck in the spigot. Mm. I struggled to get the bag removed and believe I caused my beer to be oxidized. Uh, he says, I removed the fermenter leg to retrieve the hot bag and somehow created beer bubbles at the end of the racking tube while racking. Now the beer finishes with a nice metallic taste or something similar. I don't really want to relive the early days of brewing. I don't dry hop too often and usually don't have many issues with my dry hopped beers or non-dry hopped beers. Thanks, man. <laughs> I guess the, the first thing I would say is, why didn't you try and get the bag out of there? <laughs> That's, that would be my thing. I would uh, attach uh, a string or something to the bag so it could be removed. Okay, so that has that being said now, I have come around to the point where I prefer dry hopping my beers in the serving keg, um, and that's pretty much the only way I do it. But all these methods you mention will produce different results, so it kind of depends on what you're going for. I have found that dry hopping in the fermenter gets you kind of a deeper hop aroma, I guess I want to say, uh, maybe a little bit more pungent, whereas dry hopping in the serving keg at cold temperatures gives me what I would describe more as a cleaner, more accurate hop aroma. And I, I apologize for how vague those words are. A lot of it will depend on what you want to do. Uh, I always put my dry hops in a bag, whether it's in a fermenter or a, uh, a keg. I use those cheap little 35-cent muslin bags. Uh, if I'm dry hopping in a keg, I use some uh, monofilament uh, fishing line to tie that bag to my dip tube so that the bag hangs about halfway down into the keg. Uh, and like I said, that's, that is my preference because number one, I have hops in there all the way through serving the beer, which can be a couple months or so for a keg around here. And, uh, also I just prefer the character that I get from dry hopping that way. Uh, I have very definitely decided that I like to get the beer off the yeast before I dry hop. There are a number of people whose philosophy is if you, uh, dry hop while there's still yeast in the beer or even at the very end of your primary fermentation that fermentation will scrub any oxygen that the hops might introduce and keep the beer from becoming oxidized 
that might be the case, but I also have found that I get interactions between yeast and hops that, that produce things I don't really care about. I, I get a lot of uh, flowery kind of aromas coming out of it doing that, a lot of like rose aromas that I don't really care for. So that's that's how I've made my decision. But I think that the important thing is to be aware of the different effects of different methods and use the one that gets you the results that you want. Well, what do you do, Drew? Uh, well, not surprisingly, I don't actually brew a lot of beers that require dry hopping. But when I do, uh, I just simply take my pellets, I throw them in a bag, I throw in uh, a chunk of stainless steel, you know, like a stainless steel bolt or something, and I chuck the damn thing in the keg. And I walk away and I can do this because I have a lot of kegs. If I, I'll monitor after about four or five days and I'll check to see what I think the dry hop aroma is. And if it's a beer that I'm planning to hold on to for a long period of time, once it hits the right area, I'll transfer and rack over into another keg. Uh, I don't like putting hot bags in fermenters because uh, for the various reasons that we just saw from our listener, they get uh, swelly and get difficult to remove. So I, I pull them out of the keg uh, and after I've racked the beer off. Now, if it's a beer like I'm taking to a festival or a party and I pretty well expect that beer to be killed that day or mostly killed, I'll still leave the hops in there until until such a point in time that I need to get them out. So, yeah, I pellets or leaves in a bag, in a keg. If I'm really feeling paranoid, I'll put a sure screen around the end of my dip tube. Uh, which is just a little uh, stainless steel screen that slips onto the end of your dip tube and uh, walk away from it. And I've actually done that before. I've, I think I've left hops in a keg for like six months and yeah. the beer itself was still just fine. Yeah. Yeah. I, people talk about how you get like grassy and vegetal off flavors by leaving hops in the keg for too long. Um, I have never experienced that, and I believe it's variety dependent, and the varieties of hops that I use, that has not happened. I think maybe uh, the people who have done this and had problems have been using continental hops as opposed to American hops, and maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know. I'm guessing so enough of that. All right. Our next question comes from Greg Inc., uh, who says, I would like to transfer my wort to the keg via a closed system. Most of the time, I'm dry hopping or adding something at kegging. What would be the best practice of transferring wort while dry hopping in the keg? Um, well, again, we go back to the previous question and my answer there. Uh, I do full purges on my kegs, and we're planning at some point to do an experiment on this because uh, I like my methodology. But I will still, when I'm transferring into the keg... I will have fully purged the keg with liquid pushed out, so the thing is full of CO2. And if I have something very complicated that I'm doing, like dry hopping or adding something in, I'll simply crack the lid, throw it in that way, and transfer in. Again, remember I said that uh, I will keep it in a bag, or I'll have a sure screen on the the dip tube uh, to do filtering there and just basically turn the whole keg into one giant bag. Uh, but yeah, I've just uh, I chuck open uh, crank open the keg toss everything in and then uh, uh, rack straight in. If I'm not doing that, then yeah, I will try and go in through the posts just to reduce the amount of oxidation that gets introduced. Uh, but I've never seen any problems with uh, doing anything like that. Uh, a quick exposure isn't going to kill you. 
Yeah, and I actually uh, saw a discussion the other day where someone was uh, postulating that uh, you could put the hops into the keg, fill the keg with star sand, uh, push the star sand out as you would, uh, you know, when you were trying to do a closed transfer without uh, without any oxygen there. And uh, then and then transfer your beer in as you normally would in a closed transfer. Um, that that I think might might work. I don't think the star sand is going to have any real negative effect on the hops, especially just for a few minutes. Um, no. One one thing I, I wonder about though is you'll obviously have to be continuously releasing the pressure from the keg as you rack the beer into it because otherwise. You know, if you have a, a pressurized keg that you use to purge it of oxygen, how the hell do you get beer into it if it's still pressurized? Oh, no, you, you'd set up the uh, open up the PRV. I mean, that's what yeah. I do. Right. Uh, and so, I've seen some people also try and set up uh, sort of spooning valve setups. Right. To really yeah. sort of reduce it. But, I mean, honestly, let's face it. If you're actively pushing beer into a keg right? Uh, that's already been purged, uh, right. and we'll get to that in a, a little bit, I think, in the next segment. But if you're actively doing that, I think the micro level of transfer that you're going to see at the PRV is so minuscule as to uh, be laughable, at least for our needs. That you know, that is what I would think also. But you know, I'm I'm speculating here. So, next question comes from Troy Jenkins, and Troy wants to know: Ever use wormwood to brew beer? No, I haven't. How about you? Yes, I have. I figured that. Next question. Uh, <laughs> no, I've used wormwood before to make uh, gruits, and uh, it's an interesting uh, an interesting herb. If we're going to be very British about it, uh, but I uh, I don't know. I've I've never been uh, totally enamored by. It. I know there are a lot of people out there who uh, wormwood's very traditional because it's very bitter, and then you have other people who are big into it because they think, hmm, Wormwood, uh, Artemisia, uh, Thujone, a.k.a. Absinthe, a.k.a. everybody gets to see green fairies. Um, that's pretty well seems to not be the case. And most of the green fairyism of Absinthe just came from the fact that the stuff was bonkerly strong. I know other ways to see green fairies. Yeah, well, not all of us live in Oregon. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I've used it. I've used it to make Gruitz, uh you do need to be, um, you do need to be somewhat careful and keep a light hand with it until you figure out what you like, because wormwood is a very strong flavor, and it's a very strong flavor that, to most American palates, is uh, unpleasantly medicinal and not something that we expect. So, uh, I would actually start in sort of the quarter ounce per five gallon area uh, when boiled, and go from there. Okay. All right. Next next question comes from one of our Igors. Uh, actually, a cereal Igor at this point. Uh, <laughs> cereal Igor. I love it. And he uh, is asking a question about malt. He says, I've had a fellow homebrew club member that went pro told me that you could make the equivalent of English pale malt with 90% American Turo and 10% Munich. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, well, my thoughts on that is if I was a pro brewer and I didn't want to pay for Maris Otter, uh, it sounds like a damn fine idea. And if you look around, you see a lot of American IPA recipes out there that may not stick to 90%, 10%, but they do blend uh, domestic two-row and Munich. And in fact, you'll see it in the 
uh, experimental recipe that we're using for the great IBU test that we announced last episode, uh, the same sort of construct, uh, pale, uh, pale malt and Munich, uh, because Munich, frankly, does give a sort of malty, bready, toasty character that is missing from domestic two-row. Uh, now, having said that, at the homebrew level, if I want English malt character, I'm going to kick in the extra you know, 10, 20 cents a pound to get the English malt. Because even with doing uh, pale malt and Munich, I don't think you get quite the same sort of punch that you get from, say, a good Maris Otter malt. But is it is it a feasible ingredient substitution? Absolutely. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I, I think that it's going to probably be uh, close enough. And, uh, you know, as a home brewer, sure, spend the extra few cents. But what if you're ready to brew, you don't live close to a homebrew store, and you happen to have uh, American pale malt and uh, Munich sitting there, but no uh, British malts? Sure, do it. Uh, I'm sure it'll be great. Will it be exactly the same? No. Will it be damn good? Yes. Uh, I'm a big fan of Munich's in things like uh, like American Pale Ales and stuff like that. And uh, I think if you're brewing a, a British-style beer, that uh, this will get you a whole lot closer than if you just used American Pale Malt as your base. So Yeah, yeah. And, and truthfully, if you're going to go for a flavor character that you find in most of your American IPAs, for instance... I think that that would actually be closer than using Maris Otter, even though I really prefer Maris Otter for obvious reasons. <laughs> yeah, All right. right. So that's uh, that's the last of our ingredient questions, right? No yep. other ingredient questions. Going once, going twice. All right. We're going to take a quick break, bring you a little bit more uh, tunage, uh, and then we're going to come right back and we're going to hit the mash tun. Welcome back, everybody. We are into questions about the mash, and the first one goes to Drew. Right, and the first one goes to uh, Mike Malum uh, out of Portland, Oregon. He says, hi, Denny and Drew. First off, thanks for the awesome podcast and great books. No, thank you. Uh, my question is regarding efficiency when using a Herms coil to manage temperatures during the mashing process. I've noticed a significant drop in my efficiency, 10 points sometimes. When I use my Herms coil, constant recirculation, versus leaving the water undisturbed in the mash tun, is it possible that the constant agitation to the mash water is not allowing the enzymes to convert the starches? I usually run it at a slightly high speed of recirculation and monitor the temperatures regularly. I understand you prefer less complicated brewing systems, but since I've fully invested into this equipment, I'm wondering if you can provide any insight as to why this is happening. If not, I'll just continue to add more grains to get my points up. Uh, thanks again. I will continue to brew experimentally. All right, Mike. Uh, yeah, that's weird. Because <laughs> in all of my experiences of ever playing around with Herm systems, the one thing, and I just realized I doubled up a word there, Herm system. Really, uh, all my times playing around with Herms or RIMS or any of these other recirculating systems that are out there, my usual experience has been the recirculating system increases the efficiency of 
my brew day uh, in terms of what I'm extracting from the malt. And to answer one of your concerns there, is it possible that the constant agitation isn't allowing the mash, uh, the enzymes to strike the mash? Uh, I would say no, because the recirculation, you have to understand, the enzymes are going to come out of the, the kernels of malt that have been cracked. They're going to come into the water, and then at the same time that's happening, starch is going to be exploded and coming out of the water, uh, coming out into the water as well. So this recirculation is really actually just agitating the mash and allowing for that process to continue. So if anything, I would think it would increase the amount of efficiency. And you, we see this a lot with uh, even professional brewing systems or even down at the homebrew level with, say, the uh, zymatic systems that Denny and I both have, you know, right. where that recirculation allows you to actually pull more material from the work. Or from the grain. Yeah, uh, I, just, I just brewed on a grain father, which is a recirculate, basically a herm system. And I found that I've maintained a very consistent mash temperature the whole time. And the efficiency was right where I found it. So it, it seems like it's hard to, to chalk it up to that, doesn't it? Yeah. So to my mind, uh, here's the thing. Anytime somebody tells me they're having efficiency problems, I usually look at one of two things. Either the crush of the malt or uncalculated leftover water left somewhere in the system that's robbing you of sugars. Now, I don't know which that is for you because I obviously I don't see what your grain crush looks like or what your experience has been. However, here's my suggestion. Uh, the Herms is effectively an add-on to your mashing. So what I would say, if you want to see whether or not it's the actual recirculation that is causing this issue. I would try and do a batch of beer, do two batches, same grain, do one with your recirculation as you normally do. Make sure they're crushed exactly the same, but do one with the, the recirculation as you've been doing and do the other one just plain Jane in a cooler, unagitated, unrecirculated and see what your results are. Uh, if the results are the same, then it's obviously pointing to something that's outside of the actual hermsing process. If the results are different, then, uh, and by something outside the hermsing process, I would mean something like, say, your crush. Uh, if the results are different, then you really need to take a look and see, okay, do I have water, for instance, trapped in the herms coil that's holding on to sugar? Is there something about how I'm doing the laudering in this setup that's different, that's causing an issue? I cannot for the life of me imagine that it's the actual Herms. Um, I have I have a concept that is out there enough to just possibly have some validity to it. Is it aliens? <laughs> Tell me it's aliens. <laughs> oh yeah, man. Paula and I always believe in aliens. So uh, what I'm thinking is, is it possible? that the temperature control uh, on the Herms coil is not tight enough and that you're getting temperature swings that are high enough as the wort is running through your Herms that you're actually denaturing some of the enzymes with it. Well, yeah, I mean, but the problem is, I mean, we usually, I think as homebrewers, we tend to think of like enzyme kill temperatures as being insta-kill switches. Right, and they're really not. I mean, it takes minutes, minutes and minutes, and minutes of exposure, and usually with a Herms, I mean, yeah, you take a look at what your water bath is because I mean that's that's your heat source. So maybe to Denny's point is, 
I know you'll you'll reduce the efficiency of your ramps, but it could just be that you know going at a hundred and eighty degrees into the into the HLT is actually causing a problem, particularly if you're actually continuously recirculating through the coil, right, and not recirculating through say a bypass to maintain temperature. But if you are constantly recirculating through one hundred eighty degree water, yeah, that could be a problem. But that that would just be from time uh, at, at exposure, not like some sort of like big fluctuation instantaneously type thing. Yep. So, so you uh, may actually have a point. Yep. Yep. Uh, at, at at this point, you know that that's all we got. <laughs> you know, that's just it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So that's about the best we can do. Yeah, uh, but definitely, I definitely, I've never heard of. I've never really heard of anybody having a recirculating system cause them to have a drop in efficiency. Yeah, right. So there's something else going on. Yep. Next question comes from Anthony Moran, who says, I keg all my beer, and while I have a fair handle on the precaution I need to take on the fermentation of these beers, and he's talking wild and sour beers here, I'm unsure if I need to take these same measures when it comes to serving. Can I serve a Brett beer straight out of my kegerator? Do I need dedicated kegs? And what about taps and lines? I'm, in a, I'm a brew in a bagger. Well, actually, I brew in a bag in an esky. Australian for cooler. The Kiwis call them chili bins. Ooh, I like that. And have just purchased a grain mill. I've heard you can go much finer with bag with brew in a bag, but is there a point to where a fine crush starts hurting the finished product or affects the brew day? Well, I'll, I'll take on the last part here, and I'll let Drew handle the first. I crush really fine. I have a, a JSP adjustable mill, and I pretty much have those rollers closed down as tight as they will go to get as fine a crush as I can get. Um, I don't use brew in a bag, but I'm kind of similar with my batch sparge in a cooler with a toilet hose method. I have never had a problem doing that. Uh, I've gone, I don't use a lot of wheat, but I've gone as high as 60% rye in a beer and never had a problem with it. Uh, so I, I my take is that, uh, brewing a bag is a fairly forgiving system when it comes to loudering. So I think that probably you could go ahead and crush about as fine as you want to. And I'll tell you how I did it was I just kind of like, kept crushing finer and finer and finer every time when i finally had a stuck runoff i backed off my mill gap just a hair so i could just barely see the rollers move and that's where it's been for the last 17 years i don't i don't change it so um theoretically i would say yes go for as fine a crush as you feel like you want to have but uh be prepared for the fact you might have a stuck runoff and oh well it's not the worst thing in the world but what about uh, serving wild beers drew yeah so there's a lot of sort of righteous fear about uh any sort of wild ale and uh, particularly brett beers and so you'll see people talk oh you know i keep separate hoses i keep separate kegs uh, you know uh i have actually pinlock kegs that i use for some of my wild beers uh but i saved those for like the pseudo lambic style beers, the ones with uh, pediococcus and other super scary things that I don't want to actually get into any of my beers for a long time. Now, what I do is I I will reuse my kegs. I do have a set of ball locks that I use for Brett beers uh, that I just have kind of marked 
on them as, hey, this is a Brett keg. Uh, but the only reason I actually do that is because I don't want to do the one thing that I feel like I'd have to do every time I wanted to turn one of those Brett kegs around and use it for regular beer, which is turn around and uh, replace all the rubber. Uh, our kegs are stainless steel. Uh, they're pretty survivable unless they've got uh, micro fissures in them, which you'll quickly discover if you do this. But uh, if you want to just reuse your kegs, I would just go ahead, use it. I would I would keep a separate set of plastic, so a separate set of disconnects, separate set of serving hoses. Make sure they're marked well. Use some red tape or whatever. Uh, use those exclusively for your breads. And then otherwise... When it comes time for you to finish serving your Brett beer and want to turn your keg back around to service for something regular, uh, then I would go ahead and just um, take them apart, replace the seals, you know, all the rubber bits, and then really clean and sanitize the ever-living Jesus out of the thing. Uh, like to me, it's not uncommon if I'm using a keg that, uh, that had Brett, I will uh, make sure I get a star sand soak or sandy clean soak in there for a day after replacing the seals, just out of extra paranoia. I mean, is it actually necessary? Probably not. But at the same time, I have had a situation where I sort of half-assed the sanitation of a Brett keg, uh, put a nice Saison in there, and six months later, I had a Brett Saison. Because uh, <laughs> it, will, it will regrow. So just keep that in mind. I do tend to keep a couple of kegs exclusively for Brett Ales, but otherwise, if you are in a short kegging situation... Just replace the rubber and sanitize the ever-living Jesus out of it. And that's what I do. Yep, yep. Can, can you serve your uh, Brett beer straight out of the keg order? Yes, but same thing. Different serving line. So you may actually, if you have a keg grater, be prepared to swap lines. I've known some commercial bars that got like kegs of Cantillon, for instance, which is not a beer that I would suggest serving on a keg grater. And uh, at least not that you're going to have mixed culture serving on. And... <laughs> They went later and put like a barley wine on it, and that barley wine slowly started to turn and taste like Cantillon. So that's not a bad the rules thing. Of, r- rules of plastic apply to the kegerator lines too. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Okay, I guess you get the next one here, man. All right, this one comes from James Wilson in uh, London, England. Uh, he says, uh, "Denny Drew, love the show and your books, both so different from the usual recycled homebrew knowledge out there." I don't know. Thank I you. feel like I've been recycling for years. Um, but, uh, he, uh, invites us over to come visit the London amateur brewers club. And I'll tell you what, if you guys, if anybody can figure out how to get us over to London in a way that doesn't cost us an arm and a leg, that's right. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm there. The answer is yes. So anyway, I had a question. Having tried out multi-rest masters for a few beers, I've never been happy with the results compared to a precise single infusion. I'm wondering, though, if I can add that little extra bit of flavor to some of my malt-driven beers, such as a Hellas and a Bach, with a decoction mash. Have you guys seen benefits in beers from doing decoctions? Oh, my boy. My is very much about making the best beer I can. Cheers. <laughs> All right, James. <laughs> Here uh, we go. Denny and I both are pretty much of the same opinion about uh, decoction mashing, which is, uh, that's an awful lot of work for a very limited amount of benefit, if there is a benefit. Uh, I don't do it. Uh, I don't even do it for my award-winning uh, Hellesbach, which I love, and it's a combination of the two things that you were just talking about. Uh, I will instead, I do add a little bit of melanoidin. It's a little bit of a cheat, but uh, I don't know if I'm sophisticated enough to actually detect the itness of German beers that 
in theory comes from things like decoction and other crazy things. Uh, but yeah, I I like a, a single infusion mash, and I think that's largely because, again, I'm lazy, even if I do multi-step mashes for some things. Um, but yeah, as for decoction, I think decoction is a fun skill to have. I think it's a fun thing to try. But if brewing my beers depended upon doing decoctions, I would have gotten out of the hobby faster than I would have if I had kept bottling. <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, let me let me start off with a, a little intro here and say that do not get caught in the trap of thinking that if you do more work, you will make better beer. There is not necessarily any correlation between those two things. Now, one of the very first experiments I did close to 20 years ago was what I called the Great Decoction Experiment, where I asked uh, a bunch of brewers from all over the world to brew uh, two batches of beer, one decocted, one not, and put together a tasting panel to taste these beers blind and uh, see which beer people preferred. Uh, I myself made two batches. I made a Pilsner and a Dunkel, and then there were other brewers who did other beers. Bottom line is that um, when you look at the results from all the tasters that were involved, in general, decoction beers were preferred to single infusion beers. However, if you add the number of tasters who preferred the single infusion beers and those who had no preference, that was more than the people who preferred the decocted beers, which kind of says to me that uh, decoction did not make a real significant difference in these beers that made people prefer them. Uh, I, I still pretty much tend to go with that theory, although... Um, Every once in a while, I'll do a decoction just to see if maybe I've missed something, and I, I would really love to run this whole experiment again one more time, because there are other people who've done similar things and gotten different results. All of which is a roundabout way of saying, try it and see what you think. Uh, brew the same recipe. Brew one version with a decoction schedule. Brew the other version just as a single infusion. And then do your own blind triangle tasting. Have your friends over to taste them. Have uh, have your significant other pour three beers for you and do the blind triangle test yourself and see if, number one, you can pick out the different beer, and number two, which one you prefer. Maybe you'll be able to pick out the decocted beer every time, but you'll actually prefer the other beer. Who knows? That's the best way to do it. Drew said he adds melanoidin malt to kind of simulate the effects of decoction. That kind of presupposes that there are effects from a decoction. This but is true. yeah, uh, but on the, you know, there's nothing wrong with doing that. I would say that don't expect decoction to be magic for your beers, but try it and see what you think. There you go. Yeah. All right. I think we got one more question in the mash category. Okay. And this is, this is going to be an interesting one. This question comes from Brock Freeman via email 
and he says, what, in your opinion, is the best vessel to mash in? Oh, boy. I currently use a Kegel with a bazooka filter that I heat up on a turkey fryer to strike temperature, then cover with a blanket to maintain temperature. I monitor the temperature with a lab-calibrated thermometer. I'm the only person I know that uses a Kegel, and I'm wondering if my mashes suffer, namely low extract efficiency, because of this. Do you find using some variety of cooler to be preferable to a Kegel? Well, for me, yes, I do. Uh, that's why that's why I have three different size coolers sitting out in my garage that I use to mash in. How uh, many of them are blue? Uh, two of the three. The other one is all white. Yeah. Well, hmm. um, and you know, it 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 comes down a lot. To personal preference there is nothing wrong with using a kegel although if you're getting really low efficiency then you may want to look at how you have it set up and rethink that uh, a kegel will generally be better used fly sparging than batch sparging although not you know, you can batch sparge in it. Uh, so if you are fly sparging, you want to look at your fly sparge technique to make sure you're not getting channeling. You want to look at your false bottom or whatever you're using in it. Let me see. Did he say he uses a bazooka? Yes, he did. Okay. So then you, know, you probably don't have to worry about uh, about dead space underneath, uh, underneath a false bottom or anything like that affecting your efficiency. Uh, crush is always the number one thing I look at with regard to efficiency. So you could try crushing finer and see if that does it. But basically, I don't know if there is a universal best mash ton. The best mash ton for you is the one that fits the way you like to brew. Yeah, and I'll I'll I'll, I'll chime in with that as well. I for the first twelve years of my life as a brewer. I uh, mashed in a uh, just a cheap Chinese stainless steel kettle that I put on my stove because I was a five and a half gallon brewer, and that worked like a charm. I didn't even blanket it or anything. I just would occasionally put some heat on it and stir. Uh, nowadays, I do use a cooler normally on my normal rig, but when I go and I brew, for instance, with, with my club on our club system, that's a giant kettle on top of a big propane burner. Uh, or sorry, actually a giant kettle on top of a natural gas burner. I'm sorry, Mr. Fletcher. I think you can brew in just about anything that you want, and I don't think it's going to matter very much. I use a cooler because it turns out, for the most part, I do single infusion mashes. It's easy. It's reliable. It holds the temperature well enough that I can cover everything up and walk away from the mash and go do whatever else is needed before I get to the stage of running off. Um but yeah, I would. If you're having problems with your efficiency, look at your crush. Look at all the other factors that Denny mentioned. Uh, but no, I don't tend to think that your vessel is going to make that much of a difference, with the exception of the channeling uh, problem that you that you might have. But even then, one would hope that doing a single draw type filter, like a bazooka or a toilet hose braid or something like that, would even out the channeling issue if you're fly sparging. Um, one possibility to try is if you are fly sparging. Uh, give the thing a uh, give the thing a try with uh, batch sparging and see if that helps. Yep. But otherwise, no, it's not your kettle choice. You're fine. Yeah, I would I would say that using a bazooka screen is probably not the best choice for uh, for fly sparging. 
and so I would that would be a good reason to try a batch barge because that kind of removes the uh, laddering system as a variable in your efficiency. So there you go. You have a bunch of wild ass guesses from us. All right, everybody. That's the end of part one of the Q and A. You guys sent in so many good questions that we're not even halfway through yet. So we're going to split this off into a second episode. So episode 25 is also going to be mostly Q&A, along with some uh, additional content. Uh, but we are uh, done here with episode 24. We hope that you appreciated the questions. Obviously, if you have more questions, you can get a hold of us at questions at experimentalbrew.com, or you can just find us about anywhere else in the world. But we hope that we'll see you in two weeks for even more questions. Yeah, so uh, thanks for joining us on this uh, episode of Experimental Brewing. You can find all of our writings and ravings at experimentalbrew.com. You can also find links there to support the podcast. You can click on the Patreon link to support our charity, the Children's Neurofibromatosis Foundation. You can click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and get a subscription to Zymergy Magazine, or you can click on the Brew Your Own link for a subscription to Brew Your Own Magazine. If you want to get a hold of each one of us individually to talk about something, I'm Denny at ExperimentalBrew.com, and he's Drew at ExperimentalBrew.com. So come back next episode and join us for the second half of our Q&A episode. And remember, until then, to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.